Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 83, the one about nailing agency briefs, misconceptions about movie marketing, and how a seagull stole the show in the shallows. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He is the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast series. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And you've just heard from my co-host, Roger Edwards, on mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing Fairness Podcast and the hosts of the Rockdoll Video Series. Welcome back. So, Pascal, this is episode 83. Mm. Episode 83. And we have got an interesting film to talk about when we get to the film marketing section of the show. Now, I think I remember rightly that your all-time favorite film is probably Jaws. Am I right? Yes, which was included in the film marketing last year for my birthday. It was a very special treat indeed. So, yes, thank you for the hint. This is our second shark movie in film marketing. Our second shark movie. But I suspect the shark involved in this one is a little bit more computer-generated than the shark that was involved in Jaws back in 1975. We're talking about the 2016 surprise summer hit, the shallows and i suspect this is going to be another kind of long version of film marketing because once you get deep diving into the film marketing campaign of six years ago um we're going to discover so many ways in which to keep the audience engaged and avoided potentially the joe's curse that is to say to be compared with a 1977 classic and almost to be dismissed offhand as just a plagiarism yeah, so we've got a lot to get through before we can start talking about sharks and teeth and jaws. So let's get straight into the show with our first section, which is In the News. And we begin with Octopus Energy, who is close to, to a deal with government ministers for the acquisition of rival energy firm Bulb, which collapsed in November following the surge in wholesale gas prices. Domestic coffee brand DeLonghi is the new sponsor of The Weather on Channel 4 until July 2023, as the brand aims to grow awareness of the bean-to-cup category. Well, the co-op is to cut investment to its change and transformation project by £47 million, Roger, next year. This will include reducing its customer and marketing roles by around 20%. Waitrose has joined Tesco and Marks and & Spencers in dropping best-before dates on hundreds of fresh fruit products in a bid to reduce food waste in the UK. They removed dates from nearly 500 products, including fruit and vegetables. Marketing industry bodies are welcoming Google's decision to delay blocking third-party cookies until at least the second half of 2024, advising advertisers to use this time wisely. Diageo says its premiumization strategy, what a word, premiumization, is paying off as its high-end brands contributed 71% of organic net sales over the year. It's a result of its continued investment in marketing as net sales rose 21.4% to hit $15.5 billion for the year to 30th of June 2022. Wow. Well, Next has reported the sharp reversal of 2021's lockdown trends during the first half of this year, with online growth slowing and physical retail bouncing back. 
Commercial radio stations have overtaken the BBC in summer listening hours for the first time since the 1990s. The reversal of fortunes is being attributed in part to the investments made by commercial stations in marketing and poaching BBC talent, as well as the launch of new services. Now, that last one's quite interesting, Pascal, because I do listen to quite a bit of commercial radio, and all these people that say advertising, traditional advertising is dead, you know, TV advertising is dead. Radio advertising is dead. Well, here we have proof that commercial radio stations have overtaken the BBC, which, of course, is doesn't have adverts. We know that. Mm. So I don't actually agree with that argument that traditional advertising is dead. It might not be as, as uh, prolific as it used to be, but in the areas where it works, it still seems to be working to me. Well, to be with you, I thought that this had happened um, earlier. You know, it, it was my perception that commercial radios were doing a bit better than the BBC, although there's some interesting uh, elements around BBC Sounds and you know, all the podcast version of all the programs. Um, and as you know, we are still based in France at this moment in time. This is still an international production, and we're keeping track of the uh, news via BBC Sounds and, and listening on replay. But here's, you know, the hint you read out the news item, investment in marketing and talent, which is interesting because when you look at what else we read out today, not everybody is having the same view. No, the co-op cutting its investment. I mean, it, it's one of those things, isn't it? We, we, we hear that we're heading into another recession and, and the UK is going to be the worst of those recessions, I think, from what we hear. We've got a cost of living crisis. People are having to watch what they spend on everything. The price of energy, gas and electricity is absolutely rocketing. Price of um, car, petrol, uh, diesel has been really high, although at least there seems to be a glimmer of hope in that, that direction. So people are having to cut back. And as always, when that happens, marketing budgets are the first to get targeted by the accountant's knife, aren't they? And I just wonder, it always happens. When will somebody actually see it as an opportunity to say, do you know what? We actually should increase our marketing budget at this time so that we can try and target a bigger slice of the remaining coin, I guess, the, the remaining pounds in wallets or or euros in wallets, depending upon which part of the international production you're part of today. Yeah, and I would want to do more research about the co-op. You know, I want to understand a, how they came up with the figure forty-seven million pounds. Seems you know, a, you know, quite huge. And you know, marketing customer service rolls by twenty percent. You know, that's that's a lot. So, what is the context? What is it that they are reading in terms of the near and long-term future? That means that to them, it's a wise decision because at this moment in time it feels like a knee-jerk reaction and not part of a long-term planning but i've got to assume that there are some very smart people working at the co-op that reached that decision but when you read out the um you know the news about diageo and that wonderful term i'm going to try and say premiumization um <laughs> you know that's that's the opposite the opposite strategy isn't it yeah it is it's it's so interesting i mean as you say diageo have really started selling their premium brands you know like johnny walker whiskey and and some of the other high-end spirits and gins and vodkas the premiumization strategy as you say has really worked so here's an example of some some companies who are 
actually investing in a different way, you know, to push something which is more expensive, you know, reassuringly expensive as, uh, as one of the strap line goes. So it's very interesting to see that. The other one that caught my attention today, um, and again, maybe this is tied into the cost of living crisis, Pascal, is this idea that Waitrose has joined others like Tesco and Marks and & Spencer and, and Sainsbury's as well in dropping best before dates from items of food. Now, this this is a bit of a controversial one, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember reading articles about this years ago saying that we have so much food waste because of these best before dates, because what will happen is a lot of people will throw things out before or at least when they get to that best before date and supermarkets will effectively ditch stuff when it gets to its uh, best before date and it actually might still be perfectly fresh and perfectly edible it's just that it's gone past this date so on the one hand you can think well it fits with you know trying to sustain our resources and sustain the planet to make sure that we don't start throwing out stuff that's absolutely fine um but on the other side of the coin i've read a few I guess, sort of conspiracy theory type articles this last week, which suggest, well, actually, it's nothing to do with saving waste. It's all to do with making more money for the supermarkets because if they don't actually have to put the labels on with the best before, they're actually saving a lot of money in the labor of somebody having to actually put the labels on, you know, individually one at a time, albeit with one of those gun things that they use to stick the labels on. So I think I'm in favor of this, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so long as it's only about the fresh food products, as the item would suggest, I think I would have maybe some concern for, for the packaged items, you know, because some of them, there is definitely uh, a, a sell by date or best before date. And my view is always, well, if it's fresh food product that you can see on display, frankly, you can use your eyes and your nose if needs be to tell whether or not you should be buying the, the item. You know, it'll, it'll look like it's no longer either particularly fresh or, or edible. So I don't have a, an issue with it necessarily. I mean, I, I will say I would be, it would be a challenge for me to be able to name 500 products, including you know, fruit, fruit and vegetables, but let them try. And I think that's also too much what is happening at this moment in time, Roger. People will complain and criticize before the, the marketing campaign or before you know there's any execution taking place. Yeah, absolutely. So, so definitely in favor for the moment. Now, we haven't really got time to look at any of the other news items there. But again, it's really interesting that Next is reporting that in-store sales are actually bouncing a lot back as opposed to online again which sort of goes against some of those things that we've read where you know online is now here to stay because the pandemic has shown people the way so we'll keep an eye on that and see whether other brands like next actually see a similar bounce back but i think it's time to move on from in the news to the next section of the show and that's when we shine a spotlight on a particular piece of content so pascal shall we move on to content spotlights In this section of the show, Pascal and I sample a piece of content. It could be a video, it could be a podcast, it could just be a blog, and we dissect it in a little bit more detail. So, Pascal, what are you bringing to the table this week? So this week I've got a video for you, our viewers and listeners. Let me just read out the title first. 
biggest misconception filmmakers have about marketing their movies by Jay Halton for Film Courage. Now, before people say anything, this is not an attempt on my part to have two film marketing segments in, in one show, <laughs> far from it. But this is really playing to, I suppose, a running theme for Roger and I, which is as follows. Number one, we do believe that filmmakers are incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, just the undertaking of bringing a film from script to screen is just amazing. They are great storytellers and we can learn from them, but they can also learn from marketers in terms of how to package, how to present and how to do things. And so that's the explanation you know, from my point of view. Quick introductions, Jit Horton is a filmmaker. YouTube channel host as well as um, executive producer on many feature films and documentaries, been really in the business of filmmaking for over 20 years. If I just give you the strap line from his YouTube channel, you understand his kind of mission, if I could use the term. I make movies that make money, and this is how. And it's all about sharing that knowledge that he's acquired over the years. Filmcourage.com, this is their second inclusion into the content spotlight. This incredible hub of, of knowledge, and community, really, for indie filmmakers run by co-founders Karen Warden and David Brunin. Now, this video, biggest misconception filmmakers have about marketing their movies, can really be watched and listened to. You just have to change the term filmmakers to content creators and change the term movies to your podcast, to your blog series and whatever, and you will see the, the relevance here. Now, what I will say is this is an extract of a longer conversation, and I have no doubt that you and our viewers and listeners will want to watch the entire interview because Jay Horton has a wonderful way to explain himself and, and share his, his experience, but also this it's done simply, which you know, will please you, Roger, and with great sincerity. So when I ask about you know, what is the biggest misconception or the biggest kind of mindset shift filmmakers have to make about marketing their movies – and you can also change, auto correct if you like filmmakers to content creators and movies to blog series, for example. Uh, Jay Halton would argue that it's all about this impression that all you have to do is make a great movie and the movie is going to speak for itself. And whilst there are examples, which have been included a lot in film marketing, that that is the case, for the most part, you have to get out there and become the face of that movie, or somebody has to, quite simply, we have to sell the content. And I could almost stop here and invite you to watch the, the video because that is essentially at the heart of the conversation. You can no longer just put the energy, the time and attention and planning, if you will, in the production creation side. You have to leave enough energy and enough time on the promotion and on the marketing of that content. And yes, in this case, Jay Horton is talking about a film, but to me, that is true of your next blog post, of your podcast, of your ebook, of your website, of your Facebook page, and so on and so forth. And what the two reasons why um, this is the case, Jay Horton would argue that there are now so many movies being produced, and in a way, is pleased about the way in which the barriers have been lowered, you know, financial barriers, technical barriers. I mean, many of you, you must, must spend some time to watch some of the Rod Vlog videos that Richard uh, Rogers put together because they are just amazing. But again, you've been able to do so because the barriers to enter have been lowered time and time again. But because of the sheer volume, it's harder to get attention and eyes on your project. Back to this idea of so much time and energy focused on the making 
and not on the marketing. Be very, very careful about it. And of course, no, the content has to be good and engaging. That's very, very true. But just to be clear, you have to market your movie and yourself too. The creation and the creator go hand in hand in the messaging to your ideal audience. So he almost makes an approach of saying, I know that's perhaps not an appealing prospect for many of you, but you have to become a brand. Filmmakers, bloggers, YouTuber, podcasters, you know, um, being in charge of a Facebook group, you have to become a brand. You have to go out there as an entrepreneur and make money or get the outcome that, that you desire. So it, it carries on talking about, obviously, um, what that is. And the extract kind of concludes with this following kind of statement from Jay Horton, which, and I want to get your reaction because that took me back to my early years as a content creator. And I'm going to quote it for you. When it comes to marketing and brand building, most filmmakers are scared of it. And we spend too much time counting on others to make our dream come true. There it is. Oh, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, it, it fits with one of the things that I believe wholeheartedly about marketing the discipline is that to a lot of people marketing is scary you know there's so much information out there about marketing um and a lot of it is is complicated and a lot of it is academic you know we do we use words like strategy and this that and the other and we have all of our own jargon and language as well which can put people off and then there are people who think that marketing is just about advertising and it's just about communication whereas we know that it's all about identifying a target group of customers and coming up with a product that will appeal to them and then communicating and advertising that product to them uh, but I think you know I'm sitting here again Pascal listening to you talk about this and thinking do you know what even you and I fall into this trap mm -hmm. even you and I fall into this trap with our content. When I put out an episode of the uh, Marketing and Finance podcast, or even a Rog log, just like you've said there, I'll always tweet it. I always put it on Instagram. I'll put it on LinkedIn and Facebook. But I probably only do it once or twice. And you think, actually, just think about the DFS sale, for example. Their adverts are on TV pretty much every day. The DFS sale finishing on Friday and then starting again the following day on Saturday and running and running and running. They are constantly advertising their product, their content. And sometimes people like you and I and filmmakers in this instance, we spend all this time putting together a great piece of content. We put it out there. We do a tweet. We do a LinkedIn. And then we move on to the next thing. Surely we should be doing what true marketers would do and actually communicate the absolute hell out of it. No, absolutely. And, and I think to me that the timing is impeccable because that recently I've been spending a lot of time with customers talking about their website. Um, either there's been a refresh or redesign, either they've gone ahead and finally spent time on the, on the blog element or on the ebook element, whatever it is. And all that energy spent in the production side, and there's almost no consideration or little consideration spent on the promotion. If it wasn't for me, from the moment you had the idea for the film or from the moment you're thinking of putting together that blog series, you have to be thinking about how you're going to market it and also how you're going to promote yourself as the content creator, which is not always easy to do. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> and and you know what? Some of what I'm going to talk about in my content spotlight today actually 
I, I think flows quite nicely from okay. some of the things you've just said here. Now, I have to hold my hands up and apologise to you, Pascal, in advance, because I am bringing another article from Marketing Week written by Mark Ritson into Hooray! the cotton. Yeah. But I have to say, <laughs> it's a while since I've um, highlighted a Mark Ritson article, and for once, it's not a rant article. So he's not going off on one about F NFTs or going off on one about Web3 or going off on one about Gary Vaynerchuk. He's actually bringing to the table some research some really interesting research that's been um, that's been put together by the Institute um, of Practitioners of Advertising, and it's all about how well marketers brief advertising agencies. So there's a nice little connection between what you've been saying and what I'm going to say is that if you are going to advertise your film or your content or whatever it is, you're going to have to brief the agency or the who, who's actually going to do the advertising for you. You've got to brief them really well. And this research is actually quite shocking because it proves that there's a massive disconnect because between what marketers think their briefs are doing and what the agencies actually think of the briefs. So I'll give you an example. 66% of marketers think that their briefs clearly define the target market for their product. And yet only 38% of agencies agree with that. Here's an even more staggering figure. 78% of marketers think that their briefs provide clear strategic direction, but only 6% of agencies agree. And as an overall, 80% of marketers just think that they're good at writing briefs. Any idea what the, the percentage is of the, on the agency side? 10% of agencies agree that marketers are good at writing briefs. Now, this, this is really, really important. I remember way back, all oh, to the start of my career, when I was involved a lot in agency pitches, I can remember, you know, the usual thing, you put together the brief, you send out the brief to three different agencies, and then there'll be that day when all three agencies come in on the same day, not at the same time, obviously, but separately, to show you their creatives for the campaign. And, and the, you know, in the, those days, they used to put the campaign examples on boards that you could hold up and, and, and share around and everything like that. And I remember we were launching a new product. It was a financial services company, a new product. And we had these three agencies come in to present their potential advertising campaigns. We were all really excited. We really, really believed in this product. We wanted it to be a success. And yet, Pascal, all three of the pitches from those agencies were really lackluster. And I remember sitting there thinking these are rubbish they really are rubbish these agencies just don't get it they've just they just don't understand and we started after the agencies had gone thinking you know we're gonna have to go out and find three other agencies to pitch because we just can't go with one of these and i remember at the time the marketing director saying do you know what it's not their it's not their fault we didn't brief them properly our brief isn't good enough and that was almost like a defining moment a realization of how important it is to brief agencies properly and that's effectively what mark ritson's article is saying and i remember at the time thinking actually the marketing director's right all our brief said effectively was we've got this new product go away and create a marketing campaign for it 
That was really what it said. There might have been a bit of fluff about we are this company and, and the product is this. But that was effectively what it said. Here's our product. Go and make us an advertising campaign. But what Mark Ritson's article is saying is you've got to do a lot more than that. And the first question you've got to nail is who is the target market? Now, again, this sounds like the bleeding obvious, doesn't it, Pascal? You have to know your target market. But marketers are not briefing their agencies. It's clear. The research shows they're not briefing the agencies. And I didn't brief the agency properly back in the day as to exactly who the target customer was. And it's not enough to say people in the UK between the ages of 20 and 60. That, that's everybody. You've got to be absolutely pinpoint. Who are they? What salary do they earn? What segment of society are they? You know, what jobs do they have? You've got to be really specific because the agency needs to be able to identify with the customer so that the creator that they're creating actually appeals to that person. And if you don't know who that person is, how can you do something creative for them? I mean, again, it, it just feels like it's absolute Bobby basics, doesn't it? But it's obviously not working. The second thing is you've got to be absolutely clear what your offer is. Now, I like the word offer. I use that in my in my book, Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans. Mark Ritson calls it a position, but it's the same sort of thing. You know, your position is, why is the product or the service that we're putting out there, why is it meeting the customer need? How does it meet the customer need? And what are its advantages over the competition over its competitors and and ideally you'll get that position narrowed down into a really quite succinct set of words you know we're not talking pages and pages here we're hopefully talking about a strap line or at least a series of words that the creatives can then take away and turn into maybe an advertising slogan like for mash get smash or something like that i guess and then the third thing and again if you, you know, it sounds like Bobby Basics, but what is the goal of the campaign? What is the ob objectives of the campaign? Is it just to get people to buy it? Is it just to get people to be aware of it? Is it to get people to sign up to something? Is it for people to buy lots of it? Or is it about maximizing revenue? Is it about going after market share? And the bottom line is what Mark Ritson is saying, this research from the IPA is saying that these three questions are not being answered in the briefs that are going out to agencies and what the agencies then have to do is they have to f effectively fill in those answers as best they can although it does beg the question why don't they just go back to the company and say we need you to answer these questions so that's prob probably a failing from the agency side of things as well but because they're not getting those answers that's why the briefs tend to result in lackluster creatives. So I do remember myself sat in that room all those years ago thinking these agencies just don't get it. But the actual fact was we didn't give it to them. Oh, wow. I mean, the timing, once again, is impeccable because, you know, we are publishing this during the summer month, which is always used for reflection, for rethinking, and maybe for a restart in, in the, you know from September onwards. And what I find fascinating is... I think also what you're picking out, you know, between you and Mark Ritson, the, the, the casualty of the immense pressure 
that both groups find themselves you know under so you've got the marketers squeezed of time resources mm, and, mm. and and sometimes just you know simple um you know, energy uh, i i have observed you know as a consultant and as um sitting on, on the borders and on exec and so on i've observed you know the way in which the leaders can just quickly become irritated by the marketing team asking all those questions do you know yeah, mean like yeah. so so sometimes you end up with a position where where the deadline is not shifting you've got to get that thing done by you know said date and all you can do is push out a brief that is the best you can do at this moment in time and i'm with you on this one and i think uh, agencies should you know make the offer and that could be a chargeable service often that it is we say right we, we are 50 percent of the way there in terms of your brief or your strategy we need to create an interactive workshop we need to uh, discuss it more because we, without that information we're going to have a you know, for the general brief, we're going to have a you know a general campaign going out. It's not going to hit the target audience and so on. So, so you've got that. I think also in the agency world, from the feedback that I'm getting of my network, there's a big, big issue around recruitment. Mm. So you also have the, the tension of marketers who are not in a position to always brief as well as they would like time issues, resource issues, and so on. And then the other, you've got the agency. We stand to lack a lot of experience and seniority. I mean, I was sat in a, in a Zoom call, Roger, for quite a complex campaign, digital campaign. As you know, that's my specialism. And with respect to the agency, the the, the team members were on the Zoom call were far too young. Mm. And I mean, nothing by it, but just you didn't have the battle scars or the badges to really come up with, with the goods at the time as well. Yeah, well, that's a that is an agency failing that I've seen as well from personal experience. Is that when they are pitching initially, they'll put wheel out the big guns, won't they? Account director, <laughs> the account manager, and then once they've won the account, then all you end up doing is dealing with the junior account executive or something like that is that such as the hierarchy of agencies but the lesson is to those of you who are listening and, and do please leave a comment and uh, you know um, on the um, YouTube video or, or talk to us on Twitter if you disagree with it let us know and we can discuss it more in a, in a future episode but I really do think that we need to be giving the agencies the answers to those questions Mark Ritson uses the word strategy in his article because he's a bit old-fashioned like me and believes that strategy is very important and really a strategy is answering those questions who's your target market What's your offer to that target market and what are your objectives? That's effectively what a strategy is. There's a little bit more to it, obviously, but if you dig down, but that's effectively what a strategy is. But I still think, Pascal, that using the strategy word today scares a lot of people away. No, you're absolutely right. And you and I, you know, many others out there are, are trying to be able for the voice of karma and reason to say, you know, use logic, use good business sense and good common sense. That was going to take you 80% of the way there and then bring that expertise either internally or externally to make sure that you go ahead and, and make sure your marketing is done right. Yeah. So, Pascal, we're going to grab that spotlight and we're going to shift it away from content and we're going to shine it on some marketing tech and apps. So in this section of the show, Pascal and I look at some apps that have caught our attention over the last few weeks, which can help us in our marketing endeavors. So Pascal, what have you got for us this week? So this week is a result of a conversation I've had with 
from customers. I'm going through a theme, not carefully planned to it, just the way it is, where I'm getting a lot of requests from current and new customers around websites. They want the websites to perform better, to, to be better. It's fascinating, you know, what, what is happening. And many of them have received the news that their Google Analytics um, kind of product is going to be changed soon to a new product, a revised product called G4A. It's almost in line with you know the, the news that we mentioned about Google delaying the decision to to stop the third party cookies. They've also delayed slightly the, the rollout of the G4A. Think of it as the embellished version, but perhaps more complex version of the trial and tested Google Analytics. And for many of my customers, they're just saying, I am sick and tired of having to learn new things all of the time. I'm too busy, Pascal. I need to have something that is a bit more reliable and stable. And, and what is interesting for me, from a marketing point of view, I don't think Google is doing enough to make sure that there isn't a backlash of people just leaving and saying, turning them back to their products. So anyway, I was tasked with looking for alternatives to the future G4A. And I've got two options for people to consider. Number one, it comes from Microsoft. I'd forgotten completely that Microsoft had an analytics product called Clarity. Here's a good name for you. So Clarity by Microsoft is a free and they claim easy to use tool that can capture pretty much everything you want to know about people's, the, the visitors' behavior on your website. And I say they claim because I've never used Clarity, perhaps like 90% of the population out there. I use Google Analytics, Samrush, and a few others. So if you're thinking of moving on from um, Google Analytics or you don't have yet adopted that, that platform, have a think and have a do some research on Clarity by Microsoft. What I'm thinking as well, Roger, people will be using a lot of Microsoft products. So why not you know, add this one onto your portfolio? There's another option more for e-commerce website called Amplitude, amplitude.com. And they offer some really interesting analytics. But in addition to that, they also offer prediction models based on the behavior of your visitors and using AI give you recommendations on how to adapt, adapt to your product pages, navigation and structures. So Clarity by Microsoft or Amplitude, an alternative to you know, essentially the big changes coming your way on Google Analytics. Yeah, I have to say, I've not heard of either of those, Pascal. So once again, such is the power of this part of the show. We we learn from each other. Now, very quickly, this is sort of um, my, my tech this week has been effectively uh, inspired by the Mark Ritson article as well, because it got me thinking about customers. It got me thinking about advertising, and it got me thinking about all the things that you need to do when you're putting to adverts together and tracking campaigns. So I came across a couple of apps which will help you with this. Now, the first one is all about you know, trying to learn from the customer's experience with your product and service. And this app is called Mopinion, Mopinion. So it's opinion with the M at the beginning. And it allows you to get customer feedback, either via your website, via your app, whatever. It just gives you really useful ways of creating surveys or questionnaires or, or more detailed ways of getting feedback. So we know that research is important. And sometimes it's not just about the data. It's not just about saying, rank your flight experience in a scale of one to 10. Because, okay, if everybody says it's a 10, then does that mean that you've got nothing to change? Actually ask people 
to give you proper feedback, ask them emotional questions and stuff like that. And you can do that with Mopinion. The second one is more about ad creation, tracking and feedback. And it allows you to look at um, ad advertising across multiple platforms Google ads and, 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 on, and on YouTube and that sort of thing. Um, I, I guess it's this is the sort of app that is useful for people who know what they're doing because we've just had this, uh, we've just gone through that content spotlight where I'm saying you might employ an agency to do the advertising for you. Well, people might still do that and maybe the agencies use this particular app to do the tracking. But if you're doing it yourself, this thing called Play Marketing is an app that you might want to check out. Now, as is the current trend, the the spelling of the word play is P-L-A-I instead of P-L-A-Y. And it's interesting on their website, it does say in brackets, pronounced play as in P-L-A-Y. And you're just thinking, well, why didn't you just call it play then, for goodness sake? But that's just me being a miserable old git, isn't it? <laughs> but it's actually a really interesting app and it does everything you need to do within the one application and it it spans multiple advertising channels so really worth having a look at both of those thank you very much you know i'm going to kind of um, echo your your sentiment about so this is episode 83 and with that fell every single week you and i can bring you know to the fore new tech and you add that even i personally either i'd forgotten about or, or didn't know about but always within the context of our specialism but also the need of our customers and uh, well you can do the math if you want 83 times four there's a lot of apps to, take for you to look into <laughs> absolutely and we always say this don't we pascal that we owe a massive debt to pioneers back in time who started and developed all the things that we talk about today in the present. So let's set the controls of the TARDIS. Let's fire up the flux capacitor and head back in time for this week in history. And in 1960, the premiere of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, starring Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh, takes place in Los Angeles. In 1977, the prototype of the TRS-80 computer is shown to Charles Tandy, the CEO of the Tandy Corporation, owner of the Radio Shack chain of stores. And in 1982, Royal Philips Electronics manufactures the world's first compact disc at their Philips factory in Langenhagen, just outside of Hanover in Germany. And in 1985, the original Xerox 914 photocopier is donated to the National Museum of American History 25 years after it was formally introduced to the world in March of 1960. My goodness, Pascal, did photocopiers exist in 1960? Uh, clearly, yeah, I wasn't aware of it. Um, but um, for me, the, the photocopier is almost like, you know, what computer did in the 90s and 2000 in a world in the office environment i mean it was almost unthinkable to not have one but it was incredibly expensive and they used to break all the time yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely i mean photocopiers in my early career i can remember photocopying so many things and and you know having to collate them and staple them together my goodness at least we're we're, we're well shut of all of that paper aren't we <laughs> we are so my first job as a young marketing officer was to be in charge of making sure there was always paper in the photocopy machine to always make sure that the ink cartridge that used to basically make my hands and sometimes my clothes very very dusty uh, was always changed 
And in one, actually, when I was working in London, we had a, a very, very modern photocopier that was also a fax machine, Roger. Now, we were going places. Yeah. Now, Pascal, I wanted to talk to you this week about this TRS-80 computer. Do you remember them? I do not. I do not, no. No. This was in the time. Now, I... I used to be able to take home once in a while from school a computer called a Z research machine research machines zx81 no it wasn't a zx81 that was sinclair wasn't it yeah a research machines 380z 380z and it was great i used to have it for the entire weekend and i would try to create my own little games you know i did a dnd &D style game and i did a space invaders style game it was all really really exciting but there was a whole host of new computers coming out at that time the commodore pet was was one and this thing called the trs80 now a friend of mine got a trs80 and i suppose the benchmark was what was the Space Invaders game like on each of these computers? So one friend bought the pet computer, the Commodore remember. Pet, oh, yeah. and what was the Space Invaders like on that? And this guy had the TRS-80. Now I knew it was a Tandy TRS-80, but it was, wasn't until I was doing the research for this news item that I, that I found out that the TRS actually stands for Tandy Radio Shack, which is obvious. But I, at the time it was a Tandy TRS-80. So in fact, effectively it was a Tandy Tandy Radio Shack 80, but maybe not. The scariest thing is that I remember playing that game of Space Invaders with that friend of mine on that TRS-80, and in the background was the Wimbledon final between McEnroe and Borg, which I think was in 1980. So we're talking about three years after the prototype of the TRS-80. I was there playing it with Space Invaders on the day of the Wimbledon final. If we do have a younger audience listening and watching, <laughs> it's difficult to communicate uh, what it was like in the 80s when the first personal computers you know, were available to us. Uh, as you know from previous uh, segment, we had the Auric Atmos uh, at home. We had Space Invaders too, by the way, <laughs> and a few other uh, games. Uh, but this ability to also learn, you know, basic programs and 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 I think for me when I when I talk to customers who are from our generation who are a little nervous about what's happening in technology I said you do remember that by the way we pretty much you know invented it I mean we, we're part of that generation of people who bought the first computers who programmed the first you know games as well as utilities you know software for for for, for the, the office world and so on so let's embrace it but you, you're absolutely right you know so that that would make it you know a 40 year to 50 year personal journey for you and I in the world of computing which is extraordinary absolutely absolutely we shouldn't dwell upon it for too long I think mm. It'll get, it'll get quick, a bit scary. Um, quick question for you, a bit of a pub quiz. So we mentioned that the first CD was produced in 1982 by Philips. Do you remember the name of the album and the artist? Was it Dire Straits, uh, Brothers no, in Arms? It was soon after. It was ABBA with The Visitors. Ah, there you yeah. go. I think, no, I'm, I'm probably thinking, I'm sure Dire Straits um, Brothers in Arms was, was the first CD that I bought. <laughs> okay, Pascal, let's come right back up to date. We've been into history, but now we're back to the present. Let's do some creator shout-outs. 
Okay, Pascal, who's your creator shout-out, and what have they done? Right, but this is a return in terms of a shout-out for Beverly Sherratt and Joe Cameron. They are the founders of Launchpad Associates. They have a wealth of experience in human resources and personal and team development. And I have to tell you, they've spent the last few months creating a series of articles, and it's relentless. And I just wanted to applaud a, the dedication, but also the find that, you know, they always manage to be so on topic and so timely. So at the heart, you know, they want to develop managers, leaders, and team members, and they want to increase self-awareness, improve team dynamics, and confidence. And if I was to read out to you, you know, the, the, the recent kind of um, efforts, you've got articles on how to feel more engaged at work. Another one, 10 critical competencies or great leaders. Keeping employees cool in a heat wave, thank you very much. <laughs> how to develop leadership skills, how employers can help with cost of living, team building for remote workers, burnout, a manager's guide to prevention, and so it goes on. And it's just, you know, every week without fail, they are producing this article. And, well, we mentioned a moment ago that not only do you have to spend time on production of the content, but we also need to spend time on promotion and i'm happy to do a little bit of that with this creator shout outs but literally for me i am so impressed that it's always timely and it's always relevant to what is happening out there in the wide world and this week my shout out goes to victoria taylor now i've given vicky a shout out on the show before way back i should have looked up the number of the episode pascal but she wrote a great article a few years ago about how you can how you can use the experience from theme parks to create a great experience for yes. your customers in other industries and Way back when I first met Victoria, she was more of a what I would describe as a general marketing consultant. But over the last few years, she's really specialized in customer experience, especially around premium brands like hotels and resorts and, and theme parks, as, as I've just mentioned. And this whole customer world experience has become a real focus for her. And I noticed that this week she has become the founder member of an organization called the World Experience Organization. It sounds really, really interesting. It says, where experienced thought leaders gather, collaborate and innovate in order to increase the impact of experiences to increase profit, improve well-being and build a better society. Now, it's only absolutely within the last day or so that i've seen this it's intriguing i'm going to find up find out a lot more about it probably sign up as well and have a look to see what uh, victoria's got herself involved with but from seeing everything else that she's done i know that this is going to be a really well worthwhile project so i can't wait to find out more about it so well done victoria and i hope it goes really well Super. So for both, you know, our viewers and listeners, if you want to access the content from Victoria, Beverly and Joe, we have we have the links in the show notes. Now, Pascal, we teased it. <laughs> and it's all about teeth. It's all about the sea. And it's a shark movie. Shall we move on to film marketing? This week in film marketing, we're going to be talking about the film The Shallows, released in 2016. Now, inevitably, because it's a shark movie, parallels are going to be drawn to Jaws, the blockbuster from 1975. But before we get into any of the discussions about The Shallows, I think we should dive in, no pun intended, to the trailer. 
Hey, sis. Hey! I just want to let you know I made it here. Mom was right. It took forever to find, but it's perfect. What did you say the name of this place was? This is paradise. in 32 seconds. So Pascal, another shark movie, and actually quite a tense, scary shark movie. Oh, oh indeed. So I have seen The Shallows three times now, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I think may suggest how much I'm enjoying it. And frankly, after discussing it today and doing the research for the marketing, I am now, I want to watch it <laughs> a, a fourth time. But I, I will confess, perhaps like most people out there, I was thinking, hmm, am I going to be able to enjoy the movie without forever being distracted by, you know, my mind jumping into the 1977 blockbuster that is Joe's, one of my all-time favorites, one that we covered in film marketing about a year ago now. And I'm, I, I'm glad to report, as you can tell by the way in which I'm doing this, that Actually, you don't. You you just are completely taken by this horror survival, which is what the director wanted to produce, and can be taken by you know the story of how will the main protagonist, played by Blake Lively, how will she get out of this alive? Yeah, and and I think for me, Pascal, it's got a shark in it, and that's probably the only connection that it has with Jaws, if truth be told, because it was it's mainly the shark versus. Blake Lively. Okay, there are a couple of other incidental characters, one of which is a seagull, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But it's mainly Blake Lively versus the shark, isn't it? So you haven't got this big community of people. You haven't got this the secondary story of the idiot politician who won't listen to the expert. You haven't got the, the guy with the fishing boat with the past history of of, of of the war experience and that sort of thing. It's just genuinely a very tense, very well-made film of one person versus a very scary animal. And for that reason, I think, as I said, it, it, it isn't really comparable to Jaws in any other way than it's got a shark, that they've both got sharks in them. Interestingly, the what, 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 has, what happens and often and actually i brought that that up you know earlier in the in the in the show this idea of people complaining about the movie before they even saw it mm -hmm. and what i think is to the credit of the filmmakers and producers they did not react 
to the naysayers and to the negative criticism. They got on with the production. And importantly, they got on with the promotion. And pretty much, I would say, by and large, people's opinions were changed once they saw the movie. Because I would agree with you, it's filmed very differently. It's beautifully filmed, I would argue. The sound design is, a, is very, very different. Some of the angles and some of the shots from actually being under the water or from the aerial views are unique, uh, provide a unique tone of voice. And you're right, it's a different story um, altogether. And I'm sure Steven Spielberg didn't go ahead creating Jaws to stop every other filmmakers exploring the theme of you know, man versus beast. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess when you look back at Jaws, the original film, we all know it was a big plastic shark don't we? And mm. if the, if anybody had any criticism of the original um, Jaws film, it was when it jumped up at the end onto the boat. It was so obvious it was a plastic shark that it, that really suspended your disbelief a bit too much. And we that's why we know that Spielberg spent so much of the film avoiding showing it and used the musical cues and the, the point of view shots in, in, instead. Whereas here we've got a CGI shark, which actually looks scarily realistic. I mean, I was actually in awe of how good the CGI is in this. Because let's face it, I was thinking about this. We've seen CGI dinosaurs, we've seen CGI aliens and everything, but more or less always when we see big CGI monsters, they're on land, aren't they? But to actually get the CGI shark in the water... So where did the CGI end and where did the, the water start? I just couldn't work out where that was. And for me, if you can't see it, then they've absolutely nailed it. And for me, that allows you to just play along with the movie. You watch mm. this movie to be entertained for, mm. for the threeing element, for the kind of trying to guess, well, how will she and what will she come up with as the solution to, to, to the problem? And... It just felt like something that you could definitely buy and have on your shelf alongside Joe's and all the others because it's just a different experience um, altogether. And can I just mention very, very quickly, because we heard it in the trailer, which I think is part of why it's an exciting movie to talk about, the music and the soundtrack by Marco Beltrami mm. creates the tension as well. Mm. And, and I think it's just saying it, it's absolutely great. And um, what is interesting, uh, critics and professionals from the world of the movies made the parallel with Jaws, but not in terms of the story, but in terms of its success mm. and of course, you know, of its marketing saying, you know, the shallows by all accounts is a low budget movie, you know, in the realms of 10 to $15 million and literally made that money, movie, money back 10 times over mm. fold, mm. you know? So, so I think it's a success financially. It's also a success from the storytelling point of view, but it didn't have the, the best of, of start at the best of, of momentum with again, the, the negative um, f feedback before anyone had ever seen the movie. Yeah. Now, Pascal, you've done the research for this mm. one and you've uncovered an absolute treasure trove of marketing stuff. Now, if I actually quickly scroll down here in front of me, we could be talking about this for the next week. I, I mean, for a low budget movie, they certainly managed to create a monumental amount of marketing momentum. So how are we going to how are we going to dive into this? So Using that to, pun again, I apologize. Go we ahead. must use as many puns as, as we can. So for, for this review to go swimmingly, uh, we, we're going to essentially <laughs> take you, abusing listeners, through the, the, the main thrust of the, of the marketing campaign, primarily trailers and posters and, and um, press 
coverage and so on. But then we've done some research for you on the social media campaigns. And there's some very, very clever tactics that I think is also wonderful because they have mirrored the, the the styling and the cinematography in terms of visuals but they also know what this movie is you know it's both an homage to the classic it's also a survival horror one and they're not afraid sometimes to be a little tongue-in-cheek and a little witty with, with what they do to play with the audience but it all began on the 16th of March 2016 with Blake Lively putting together a teaser video clip, which you actually see in the film, of an aerial shot of, of the sea. It's about 15 seconds. And frankly, if you blink, you just go, what is this? If you watch it over and over again, because it's so, so high, such an extreme kind of um, height, you will spot the um, surfboard bitten by the shark, and you will spot, spot the, the rock where Blake Lively spends pretty much the majority of, of the movie. And, and well, of course, you're going to use the power of your star with over 9 million followers on Instagram and so on and so forth. So... But the, the campaign per se began on the 18th of March with a incredibly thrilling and scary, I would say, first teaser trailer. That 90, you know, 90 second trailer, carefully crafted as we've, we've seen before with the, the three segments. You know, um, what I loved about the initial teaser, it begins with literally um, the viewer in the water. You've got mm. this incredible POV where the camera is, you know, literally under the water, above the water, under the water, uh, as if you're swimming and you can just hear somebody in the distance shouting help me yeah yeah it's very very powerful and again it harks back uh to jaws as well i guess with those pov mm. shots under the water uh, as a little uh, you know not to the marketing campaign th this um Teaser trailer is now available on the official Sony Pictures channel, and it's got an amazing YouTube thumbnail of Blake Lively uh, in peril, you know, hanging onto that kind of floating platform, which more is revealed as you watch the film. I think that's an important one because future trailers and videos have a different thumbnail, so they thought even about that, that static image to be part of the experience, and and we also see. The, well, we hear, forgive me, the uh, the music from Marco Beltrami. Days later, 22nd of March, we have the official poster and absolutely love this poster. Again, I'm going to use the S word, simple, simplicity. Mm. A surfboard with two feet dangling down from the surfboard. But obviously, it's a POV shot from the shark's point of view, isn't it? Underneath the water. And it just absolutely nails the brief. It nails also the, the look and feel of the movie. You know, yeah. the, the water looks exquisite in that movie. Yeah, uh, I love uh, for people like about graphic design. You know, using the, the rule of thirds and, and that kind of things. And of course, it reveals for the first time. I think you know the, the strapline of what would once in the deep is now in the shallows. Yeah. Um, actually, I think that's a nod to Jaws because. Um, Chief Brody learns that most shark attacks happens in, in shallow water. Mm -hmm. uh, on the 4th of May, you have this second official trailer, which we watched together. Yep. It tells more about the characters or stories. I love as well about how it's, it sells, you know, the the challenge of crossing the water, the distance, all, all that is, is in there as well. And we've got um, a second um, tagline, which I'm not as fond as the first one, I must confess, not just another day at the beach, but it's trying to bring that element of tongue-in-cheek tongue and, and humour into it as well. I think I agree with you. I think the second tagline isn't as strong as the first, but I do like its playfulness. 
and and maybe that is it was a lead into some of the more humorous elements of the social media campaign that came a bit later. Absolutely. So, you know, this is the business of filmmaking. Uh, Jay Horton in Content Spotlights told us as much. So, of course, you've got to go to the Cannes Film Festival, leading up to, obviously, a final trailer. And I want to quickly mention that this final trailer is an anomaly to me. I, I don't mind it so much. You know, you've got to try things. You've got to be brave in, in marketing. But you end up with this strange um, mashup between the, the teaser trailer and the second trailer. But the background has got that modern music. I think it's the track Relax My Beloved by mm -hmm. Alex Clare mm -hmm. that she's listening, I think, on her phone. You've got this strange, very sullen voice over narration about self-reliance. And I don't know, what, what did you make of this? I didn't. I didn't like it as much as the as the first two. Definitely mm. not. It, it it detracted from the actual end feel of and look and, and and everything of the film. But having said that, I would have been. I would have been. Uh, scooped in, I would have been netted, I would have been caught by the first two trailers. So uh, I, I'll I'll let them off the third one. Yes, and clearly the audiences did. So because that one has got the level of views, views count on, on YouTube as the others. So um, something that became a, a bit of a um, running theme as well for the marketing, Blake Lively answering questions live on social media or YouTube. Uh, on the 15th of June, she was invited by iTunes trailers to answer questions about the making of the film, whether or not she's scared of sharks and so on and so forth. And, and that has, has happened a lot throughout the kind of campaign, both for the, the movie being released on the big screen, but of course the DVD, Blu-ray and, and digital. Now this movie premiered in June 2016 of course, it's going to be done in the summer as people are going uh, to the beach. And, and there was a rollout across most of August and September uh, around the world. Just going to close the um, the kind of the main marketing campaign before deep diving into social media with um, some of the things that they did back to the playfulness that you mm -hmm, mentioned. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they had some adverts on Discovery Channel during Shark Week special, which yeah. I thought, well, of course you're going to do that. Talk about being precise with your audience and so on. And they also, much, much later on for the DVD release, created an advert where you could essentially the people are watching the shallows in, at home, but they are so taken by by the the story that they eventually imagine that their house is also in the water and the only safe place is their sofa. So I thought it was just wonderful <laughs> how, how they did that. But let's move on, if you don't mind, then to the social media uh, campaign. There were some really clever things that they did. Now, to begin with, which we've seen before in other movies, they repurposed the feedback and the praises from printed and digital media into their own little style. Now, at first, I couldn't see what I was watching. I could see that there was obviously the text uh, from maybe IGN, you know, that's for surfing what the Blair Witch Project did for camping. I mean, what an accolade. And you have an image. But then it's it's framed within something that looks like a canvas. You have the hashtag, the shallows. You have, obviously, blooded fingerprints. I'm thinking, what is this? And I realized, oh, it's the old-fashioned uh, photos coming yes. out of the automaton, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it's, uh, doesn't, doesn't the character in the film actually have some old photographs that she looks through at some point of a mother or something like Correct. that? Or, or at least that there's that uh, flashback of her mother. So uh, that's very clever how they did that. So, you know... 
not only did they repurpose the feedback and praises, but they used their own style. And there was a nod to the movie. So if you've seen the movie, there's a reward in terms of understanding <laughs> what that is. And yep. if you haven't, there's the intrigue and there's a payoff when you watch the movie. Then there was something that back to the playfulness where we talked about the character of Blake Lively. There's obviously the locals who are also surfing or taking there. But there's another character that actually did get the spotlight <laughs> in the marketing campaign. Yeah, now this is this is phenomenal. This is the fav my favorite part of the whole thing, Pascal, because we were what we watched the film again this week, as I always do when we um, have a film to review in film marketing. And as you know, when she originally gets injured by the shark, there's also a seagull that gets injured by the shark as well. And they end up basically sharing the same rock, don't they? The seagull's there and it's got a broken wing um, and it's got blood on it. And I, I remember saying to Trish, you know, we obviously know the shark is CGI. That's not a real shark, but I wonder whether this seagull is CGI as well, because it's a remarkably clever seagull because they've obviously got it to do what it was meant to do, sit at a certain angle or squawk or flap its wings or whatever it was. And of course, I hadn't read your research at that moment. Uh, so I went on to Google to find out and I was utterly <laughs> delighted to find out that this was a seagull with a name, Sully Stephen Seagull or Sully for short. And it's a seagull actor. And of course, they've made a big deal out of this over social media, but I was absolutely delighted. And apparently it was a very gifted and well-trained bird. He's actually got his own entry on the Internet Movie Database, Sully Skit Siegel, and he's actually been in another film. It was called The Lighthouse. Um, and apparently Sully Stephen Siegel is still alive in a seagull sanctuary or whatever you might call it in Australia. So this bird genuinely almost stole the movie from Blake Lively. And you know what's lovely is that the filmmakers once again know what, what they've created yeah. as an experience and they know when to lean in with the fan base. So you're right, you know, Sully Steven Seagal had this one credit at the end of the movie. People took pictures and put them on social media and the official channels, you know, the shallows responded. Yeah. You people saying, you know, things like... Um, you know, nothing more inspiring than Blake Lively battling a shark, but the seagull really held the movie together. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just so funny, and 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 the shallows are retweeting it, and so it goes on. It's just wonderful um, how they played to that. But then they switched it as well. You know, they went into the territory of our fear of the water, uh -huh. fear of sharks. Uh, as someone who was, used to go surfing when I was much younger, you are waiting for your next wave with your with legs, legs dangling in the water, and you try your darndest not to go dun, dun, <laughs> in your head because it's literally just um, almost like a phobia, you know. And they had the hashtag Fear the Shallows, and they created a whole series of social media posts, which you're going to read out to you using one liners, two parters, or my favorite, the rule of three. So the first one would be things like, There's something in the water, hashtag Fear the Shallows, watch your back. Then there's another one. Don't say, we did not warn you. Get out of the water. You can read out the two parters if you want, Roger. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the one that I like is the watch your back. Mm. That's lovely. The, the picture of Blake Lively looking over a shoulder. Watch your back. You know, again, fear the, fear the shallows. 
So if you look at the two parters, you had, so that was the one-liners, then you have the two parters. Wherever she goes, comma, it will follow. Yeah. And you have, obviously, the, the picture. The next one, which um, is moving into the rule of threes, if it sees you, it breathes you, yeah. it hunts you. I mean, yeah. you know, hashtag fear, fear the shallows. And the one that was used as a secondary kind of um, poster as well, um, outsmart, outwill, outlast. And then, you know, you've got a badly injured Blake Lively hanging on and taking on the shark as well. Can I just quickly mention, you know, those injuries, albeit special effects, practical effects, they look so, so incredibly painful. I think that was part of the experience, <laughs> wasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you if you get a, a, an obviously fake injury, makes you actually wince and actually mm. almost grimace. I mean, when she was sewing herself up with the necklace, you know, you it's like, it's like horrible. And, and, and again, I would actually say that, you know, some of the photographs they were using in these um, rules of three, Etc. Outsmart, outwit, outlast. Great photographs that they actually managed to take. Just like the thumbnail from the um, uh, trailer, they really took their time to select the photographs that would work. Just on, last one on the rule of three, because I think they, they used that a lot in in the trailers and teasers. It's about repeating and reinforcing the you know the challenge mm. and the, the ordeal. So you've got one hundred yards from safety, fifty yards from the boy. And one to eighteen thousand pounds of shark. In the yes. screen, you know? So, just using numbers, which I've not seen done uh, as often, but again, created in in that kind of really uh, exquisite style of the, the movie and so on. And whilst the campaign on social media was only for a few months, you know, it was literally the duration of the launch, and then maybe getting to the the release of the DVDs. They created so much content in there, but. I would argue it's something you could almost want to have as a playbook. You would want to have this as a coffee table to look at in, in full size. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. It's a great social media campaign. And, and it was social, wasn't it? Um, I mean, there's a difference between just putting adverts out on social <laughs> media, but actually getting people to interact with you. And obviously, people were interacting about the seagull, etc. But there was, there was other interactions as well, wasn't there? Yeah, so continuing with the playfulness and and this tongue in cheek and so they would do things like talking to people about you know that Monday feeling Monday morning, uh, but they had a picture of Blake Lively being chased by the shark, and you thought your Monday was bad, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. You had that. Um, of course, of course, it is Blake Lively, and of course, her husband Ryan Reynolds had to kind of uh, kind of uh, participate. So there's <laughs> there's a post retweeted by the Shallows official Twitter account where Ryan Reynolds talk about actual footage from the first date with my wife and this picture <laughs> of the shark yeah. about to bite Blake Lively. Yeah, that's very good. That's very good. And then she follows with her response saying, remembering the first date with Ryan Reynolds. So there's a picture, or there's a video of her being bitten for the first time. There's blood everywhere and the word Deadpool. Deadpool. Um, so that little play with the audience. And if you mm -hmm. don't know that they're married, if you don't know that um, Ryan Reynolds was in Deadpool, you can still have a smile because it's well executed. The one that made me wince was the one about diamonds are a girl's best friend, which is the, the moment where she uses her um, earrings to stitch together the, uh, the <laughs> wound when she got bitten in the leg. And you know you kind of go, yeah, see what you're doing. And then 
They even had the um, Happy Halloween fans. Yes. And people were sending pictures of themselves um, dressed like Blake Lively with fake blood all over their, their, you know, where the injuries was. And people dressed as sharks chasing <laughs> the, um, you know, the other people. And so it went on. Yeah. So yeah. We, we've seen you know campaigns before where you can see that there is expertise in the art of social media marketing. But this is the first time where I saw some real complicity with the audience. Yeah, no, I think the the social media campaign for me is one of the best examples we've had in film marketing so far because, I mean, we've seen some pretty impressive ones, admittedly, but this one genuinely got people's imagination going and people were interacting. And that's what social media is about, isn't it? It's a conversation between two people, to, between two audiences, and they really nailed it here. They did that indeed. So, you know, listen, we've spent a lot of time talking about the marketing of the shallows. So how do we wrap this up? So I think for me, we can derive three to four lessons. So number one, ignore the naysayers and the critics and yes. get on with your project. Tell your story to the best of your ability and get on with the promotion. Um, second lesson for me, react swiftly to the positive feedback and the fans and create your own range of visuals and, and have fun with it. And I think that's really quite the third one I would say, and that's credit to the director and to the production team, know your genre, you know, know the story you want to tell and stick to it. And what is interesting is that the director was very, very keen, called it Sarah, the Spanish director uh, behind the, the, mm. the orphan, I think, and many others, uh, he wanted the shows to be recognized as a survival horror film and, and i think he was successful in that yeah and i'm going to talk about the seagull just once one more time <laughs> uh, because this is a piece of um, information that i managed to find out myself as well you've got to expect the unexpected now they decided they would go with a real seagull now i didn't know this but seagulls are apparently extremely clean animals a bit like cats you know cats spend their entire lives cleaning uh -huh. themselves now they actually had to put fake blood on the um, seagull to show that its wing had been broken. And the seagull kept cleaning the fake blood off because it doesn't want to have anything on its feathers. So every, every more or less every single shot, they had to reapply the fake blood because in between shots, the seagull was cleaning the blood, the blood off. I just think that's fabulous. That is, it is. And <laughs> I mean, to, to your point, We've got, to, and that's probably why I, I like the shallows as much as I do. I'm also sensing that this would have been a tough shoot. You know, yes. the, the amount of time spent in the water by all, you know, cast yes. and crew, the planning, probably you know, being very dependent on weather conditions and light conditions and so on. I, I don't think it, it, it was easy. No. Uh, maybe the easy part was the CGI stuff, frankly, because at least you have full control. So I think there's also some elemental respect on, on my part, which means that, you know, I can't wait to watch this for the fourth time. Absolutely right. I think I'm waiting for, I don't know whether there's a 4K ultra um hd version we certainly watched it on blu-ray and hd but i'm certainly waiting for the 4k version to come out and that will be my fourth outing for this as well pascal what a fantastic choice for film marketing this week thank you for bringing the shallows back onto the screen really enjoyed talking about it and what an incredible marketing and social media campaign everyone thank you so much for watching and listening to two geeks and a marketing podcast episode 83 it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today if you've got any feedback for us please do 
leave a comment on the YouTube channel, look for us on Twitter or Pascal. They can use something called SpeakPipe. Just quickly remind me of the SpeakPipe URL. Uh, speakpipe.com forward slash two gigs and a marketing podcast. Fantastic. Just leave us a message or a question or a suggestion. We'll listen to everything and we'll respond to everything. Thanks again for watching. Thanks again for listening. Until the next time, go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.